hear us through your AirPods or see us on your laptop, how about meeting us in real life? Because we're taking Queer Money on the road this summer and fall. Visit QueerMoneyPodcast.com forward slash tour or the link in your podcast player to find out when we'll be in your neighborhood. 32% of LGBTQ Americans stress about money every single day. 28% of us don't have access to a company-sponsored retirement plan. Two-thirds of LGBTQ folks with employer-sponsored health care can't cover their partner. Yet 26% of LGBT Americans and 38% of transgender Americans make above $100,000 a year compared to 31% of Americans overall. What are these? They're just some of the many stats we found in the newly published Motley Fool Defrey Guys LGBTQ Money Study and a glimpse of what we're talking about today with Jack Caparol of The Motley Fool on episode 319 of the Queer Money Podcast. We've got a lot to share, so let's get on with the show. You're listening to the Queer Money Podcast, personal finance with a rainbow twist. Queer Money is dedicated to financial independence, financial well-being, investing knowledge, and the intersection of all things money as an LGBTQ person. Queer Money is made possible by Capital One. Capital One believes that financial well-being includes your mental, physical, and financial health. Check out CapitalOne.com today. Gainbridge sponsors the best, including the Indiana Pacers, Indiana Fever, Indiana 500, and the Queer Money Podcast. That's because Gainbridge believes that dedication is an essential component of success in every community. Visit Gainbridge.life today. Welcome, Jack Caparol, to the Queer Money Podcast. We're excited to have you. Great to be here. Awesome. So I think this shows the value of persistence. Because for David and I have tried to do a sort of state of LGBTQ finance study for the last couple of last several years and almost had it happen twice with two different companies. Since and 2018. We've, 2018. Been, we've been trying to try to do this since 2018. And all for all sorts of reasons, it, it, it almost happened and then never did. Like for example, there was a pandemic, it kind of changed everybody's objectives. So we're excited to finally be able to partner with Motley Fool to sort of conduct a state of LGBTQ financial wellness study. So thank you, Motley Fool. And thank you, Jack, for joining us to talk about the Motley Fool Debt Free Guys LGBTQ plus money study. Yeah, it's our pleasure. I think, well, hearing that you've been trying to do this since 2018 is kind of a bummer, but I'm glad that we were able to get the study at the door. And I think hopefully this is the beginning of a series of studies that we can do in the future, maybe on a yearly basis kind of track some results and see how things are changing, or we can ask some different questions in the future based on current events. But my sense is that we're just scratching the surface here. I think there is a lot of demand for the data that we found, and we have some interesting results to discuss as well. Absolutely. Yeah, totally. You, know, it, you bring up a good point. We started trying to do this since 2018, and the world has changed dramatically since then, totally. right? Whether you're a part of the queer community or not, it is highly likely that your financial situation has changed. Some people have done extremely well during that time period. And we know a lot of people, their financial situation has changed drastically for the worse. And so it's kind of interesting that we're taking this snapshot just shortly after the pandemic seems to, seems to be waning. Let's cross our fingers, seems to be waning. So maybe some people are feeling a little bit more comfortable let's hope but it is the data is very interesting and i'm glad that you talked about this idea of 
continuing to take this snapshot? Are we seeing progress, right? It's one thing to take a snapshot in time, but our community is constantly looking for progress. And that's what we, we want to see here with our finances as well. Yeah, 100% agree with that. I think there's also, again, going back to the issue of y'all trying to do this since 2018, the other thing that that shows is that there's a real lack of data available on the LGBTQ plus community. And given that, I think that calls for more consistent data gathering. And listen, if, if no one else is going to do it, let's do it. Why not? I love it too. So let me, let me dive a little bit deeper there. Why did you think, or why did Motley Fool think it was important to c- conduct such a study? Simply because there's a dearth of the information out there, or were there any uh, additional reasons to that? Yeah. So there's like a smaller picture and then bigger picture answers that question. I mean, they're both, I don't mean to belittle the first half of the, my answer. They're both important, but about a year ago, we did a kind of roundup article that incorporated all the data that we could find on the financial state of same-sex couples. And we just realized that the data in this area was really, really lacking. There's just not a lot of it. You know, the Census Bureau was really the only government agency that we could find that collected any data on the LGBTQ plus community. And that was just data on same-sex couples, right? So that is a tiny slice of that world. There's no detail on sexual identity, gender orientation, et cetera. There's some data collected by non-governmental organizations, but some of that is published in a pretty like academic way. It's like a 40, 50 page report, not very easily digestible if you're kind of just trying to get a handle on the state of the LGBTQ plus communities finance finances, right? And then there are some good surveys that have been done by financial institutions, but we thought more could be done. I think that's how we connected you all. Correct me if I'm wrong. You all saw that article and we're like, let's team up and do a bigger survey. But then, and obviously we're all for that. And part of the reason this is the bigger picture, part of the answers, part of the reason we were all for it is financial inclusivity is really important. It's a value of the Motley Fool. We, we try and make the world smarter, happier, and richer. So the entire world, right? We're not very selective in terms of who we're trying to help. And my sense is that there is a large chunk of Americans who don't feel like the world's investing and finance more broadly are necessarily welcoming to them or maybe for them. They feel a little bit out of place in them or that the messages coming out of the world of finance and investing don't really click with them. And that's a shame because anybody can be an investor. Anybody can budget and improve their financial well-being, right? And just the LGBTQ plus community in particular, the last time a survey was done, 7% of American adults identified as LGBTQ plus. That's probably an undercount, I would guess, but that's still close to 20 million people. And It's important to understand how those 20 million people interact with the world of finance if they face unique financial challenges and to better understand how we can help them as part of the world become smarter, happier, and richer. So that was long-winded. I I apologize. No, no, that's perfect. I'll add in here, folks, one of the nice things about what we did with Motley Fool when we partnered on this look at LGBTQ folks and money is... This is the first study that is solely 
looking at LGBT folks. In the past, when we when we have gotten data from other organizations, and you've heard us talk about these other organizations, the LGBT community has been a minuscule subset of a larger study. And this time, we approached Motley Fool and he said, can we just please just look at our community? Let's not make the LGBT community a 10% sample of this overall study. Let's just look at the LGBT community. And what that did is that allowed us to get a much larger sample. I'm thinking about Prudential and Mass Mutual, and we're very grateful what they've done in, in the past with their studies. But our community ended up being a couple hundred people in their overall study. And this study is 2,000 LGBT folks and what they say is going on in their lives when it comes to their current financial situation and how they feel about their finances. So again, we, we, we have... We're very grateful to be able to work with Motley Fool on this one. Yeah, no, this was a great partnership. And I'll just harp on this again. At least 7% of American adults identify as LGBTQ+, probably an undercount. That's still 20 million people. I don't think that should be treated as a footnote in terms of you know how we view financial well-being in this country and and whether or not certain Americans face financial challenges. 20 million people. So a lot of individuals, it's also a lot of money, right? Mm -hmm. So I think it's in everybody's interest, whether you're on the corporate side of things or you're someone who's trying to better understand how to improve your own financial state. It's worth taking a closer, closer look for sure. A hundred percent. And David offered a great segue there. What can you give us a little bit of context of how the you're kind of the 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 engine behind this study. Can you give us a little context of how the study was actually conducted? We pulled 2000 plus people and then all the little cogs that go into that. Yeah. Well, you're giving me too much credit because when you guys approached us, you sent us like, and stop me if I'm revealing too much. You sent us like 500 questions uh, and they're all amazing <laughs> questions, but we, we've been doing this for a little minute. bit <laughs> <laughs> and hopefully we'll be able to ask all of these questions eventually over years and years of, of doing this study in different iterations to come. But we had to pare back a little bit and make it a little bit more readable and digestible. Jack and help a us. Bit. <laughs> yeah. Well, I tried my best. Yeah. But what I'm getting at is we we could have asked hundreds of questions, but we really we didn't just to make the results a little bit more manageable for us and for the readers. But we still wanted to work together on a survey that would capture financial well-being holistically. So we asked questions in a bunch of different categories and areas of, of finance. We also wanted to mix qualitative and quantitative data, right? So how do you feel about your retirement progress, progress towards saving for retirement? And also, you know, how much do you make? How much do you have in savings, et cetera? Had a mix of those questions. We surveyed 2005 LGBTQ plus Americans about 50% of the respondents identified as cisgender LGBTQ+, 35% identified as transgender LGBTQ+, and 15% identified as genderqueer or non-binary. So those responses, they're a little overrepresentative for transgender and genderqueer non-binary individuals based on, again, the most recent polling data I've seen nationwide. 
But those are the categories that we've seen the least amount of data for in terms of what's out there. So we wanted to make sure that we captured how those communities are doing financially. Capital One strives to inspire a better financial path for everyone, including the LGBTQ plus community, through access to credit, tools to manage debt, and product features. Digital products such as CreditWise and Eno are designed to take the stress out of money by helping you manage credit, a key source of potential stress, and stay on top of spending without worrying all the time. Sign up for CreditWise for free today. Cool. Thank you for that that summary. I think it's, it's going to be very helpful for people to understand exactly what the nuts and bolts of, of the study were. So we're going to dive into some of those, those details shortly, but we thought maybe we could start the conversation sort of at a high level. What did we all think were the biggest takeaways from this survey? Every time you do a study like this, everybody kind of, they're, they're shocked by, or surprised by, you know, one particular element more, more so than others. So I'm curious what everybody, what all of us thought. So we'll throw it to you, Jack. What stood out to you most? Yeah, for sure. So I would say a couple things stuck out to me. One is that transgender Americans are really outperforming their peers in a number of categories. They tend to have higher credit scores than other folks in the LGBTQ plus community, more savings, et cetera. So I wouldn't say that came off as a surprise to me, but that's something that stood out. And then the other kind of overall takeaway that I have is I think if you look at a lot of the results together, as opposed to individually, you do see some evidence, some explicit evidence and some implicit evidence that there might be an inclusivity issue when it comes to financial education or adoption or access to financial tools. And I think I suspect that's something that we'll touch on throughout our conversation, but just taking a step back and looking at all of the data, that's something that stood out to me. And yeah, it's something that Motley Fool has done a little bit of work on in other areas, other projects. So yeah, be interested to dive into that topic. Yeah, hundred percent. What did you think, David? Yeah. So uh, to me, it's not necessarily a surprise and it kind of ties in a little bit to what you were saying here, Jack, but again, it's reinforced, but this is actually reinforced by specific numbers that in 10, we had one question that had 10 examples of where LGBT folks feel comfortable making financial decisions. And in every single one of those less than half, and in some cases, less than a quarter of us felt confident about making the financial decisions that would improve our lives. So if less than half in things such as basic as paying off credit card debt or saving for emergency savings, if we don't have the confidence and understanding on how to do that, no wonder we see some of the financial results happening in our community, which again, I think what you had mentioned is either speaks to this lack of inclusion or lack of attention, maybe lack of, maybe what's happened, we are being so distracted by other things that we are not focused on or not aware that we need to focus on and the value that focusing on those things could bring to our lives. Yeah. I think that's very poignant. And I think we talked about this a little bit before the interview, some of that distraction that David pointed out earlier could be the fact that we're still fighting for our rights, right? Everything that's going on at the state level against 
attacking the LGBTQ community, that seems to like suck all of our attention. And so maybe our finances doesn't seem as important as it should be or as it could be. It's not front and center. You know, John, yeah. John and I were just talking about this prior to the pod starting the podcast is that if you're a straight, predominantly straight, white, moderate to moderately conservative or conservative couple, you're not really fighting for a whole lot in your life right now that is beyond yourself, right? You're not fighting for your community. You're not fighting for rights. You're just fighting for making your own life better. And then you have, but if you are a queer person or a person from a minority community, communities of color, you're constantly being barraged with, not just from folks outside of your community, but politically, media, you're constantly getting this barrage of distractions about things that you should be doing or needing to be paying attention to. And that just wears your decision-making ability down. And you know, you, you get decision fatigue. We all get decision fatigue, but we have all these other decisions that are constantly hitting us. And so that may be part of the reason why we feel less prepared or don't have the confidence to make those kinds of decisions. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And, you know, I'll just quickly make two points here. It might not even just be decision fatigue, but time, time, just the lack of time, you know, you're focused on other efforts and other challenges that are unique to the LGBTQ plus community that, uh, you know, the person that you use in your example, obviously doesn't have to deal with those same challenges. And they've just more time to read about their, you know, company 401k match policy. They have mm -hmm. more time to read about how to build a budget. They have more time to put all of their budgeting numbers into a spreadsheet and, and see where they could be saving more, et cetera. They just have more time, you know, and everything that you just described as well is what I see as justification for the study and the work that we did, right? So individuals and communities in unique social locations obviously face unique challenges and those unique challenges play out in a whole range of ways, a range of different ways. And, and yeah, they can certainly have an impact on your, your finances, but beyond the numbers, they have an impact on how someone approaches finance, how much time they're willing to spend, how much mental energy they have. And that gets into bigger questions, I think that a lot of companies could probably learn from. So are the messages that we use when we're pitching our financial products, are they engaging members of the LGBTQ plus community? Are they reaching them? Are they impacting them? Do the values that we have align with the values of the community that we're trying to reach, et cetera. And if you just do a national survey and then you carve out your little 10%, you're going to miss a lot of nuance, I think. So yeah, couldn't agree more. Yeah, 100%. Heard a rumor about annuities? Cut out the noise by visiting Queer Money podcast sponsor Gainbridge at gainbridge.life to learn more. And so I think what struck me the most might be sort of bring this all home is that two thirds of LGBTQ Americans have a high amount of financial stress. And this is to me even more striking is that 26% of LGBTQ plus Americans stress about money each week and 32% of us are stressing about it each day. So while we might not have 
the time or the energy to do anything about it, or the messaging might not be connecting with us, or we might not know where to go to get the information or feel prepared to make the decisions, it's still affecting our lives. And even if that's just a little bit of stress, that stress compounds on itself. And it's also compounding on the other things that are causing stress to us. So it's having an exponential effect in how we live our lives. And unfortunately, it's probably to David's point, it's always the last thing that we're going to get to. I'll get to that later. And I think part of the problem too is the, the pay inequity. And that maybe it's like the beginning of the funnel is, is so thwarted that worrying about the rest of it just seems you know ridiculous or, 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 or futile. And so let's, let's focus on the, the top of the funnel when in fact, there are multiple ways that we could improve the entire funnel, our entire financial picture, obviously pay equity being one of them, but there are other, other ways that we could do it. So I feel like tackling this one particular question, we could really dive into a whole episode. <laughs> so it seems LGBTQ folks in general aren't saving for emergencies or for retirement because we feel like we don't have enough money to keep up with the cost of living and inflation. But the reported household income isn't significantly lower than the general population or who are saving relatively more for emergencies and for retirement. Any idea why we think this might be? And is this a discrepancy in what data that we have seen in the past? Yeah, so this was interesting, right? We asked folks what their income was, kind of like an income bracket. And on the whole, the similar percentage of LGBTQ plus folks that we surveyed were making less than 75,000 a year and a similar as the national population and a similar percentage obviously then were making more than 75,000 a year compared to the national population but then we had these numbers that suggested that LGBTQ folks were saving less despite making a similar amount so yeah there's something going on there right i think there could be any number of reasons why that could be the case you could just chalk it up to folks spending more money. And that's not necessarily a bad thing, right? If you're spending within your means and you're spending on things that improve your own well being, spend away. I will say, you know, we asked in our survey why you're not saving as much. And so 42% said they just aren't making enough money. Over a fifth said they're happy with the amount that they're saving. So that's a that's a good takeaway. As long as they're kind of saving about they have about 15 to 20% of their salary in savings, that's great. 14% said they would rather invest the extra money. Okay, love that. Again, as long as you have like your emergency fund, that's great. 13% said they lack the discipline to save more. That's fixable. But we didn't really ask. It's kind of hard to explain why that saving parity exi- disparity exists when there's an income parity, right? It might just be that folks are spending more. I wouldn't want to say that I could explain it from an armchair. Yeah. It is an interesting conversation. Folks, you know, John and I have talked about this, that in the past, we spent money, a lot more money to make ourselves feel better because of growing up in times and places where we didn't feel okay being ourselves, right? And then when we felt like it, we could, we finally had the money, we wanted to spend that money on making ourselves feel better. We didn't spend that money on saving for a down payment on our house. We didn't save, we, we didn't spend that money on investing. We spent that money on a new pair of jeans, 
brunch with our friends, vacation to Miami. We spent our money on those kinds of things that kind of made us finally feel like we were okay. I don't want to say that that's the sole thing that's happening here, but it is. I mean, we've seen the data, especially with millennials. We've seen the data where millennials have said that they are spending money that they don't have to keep up with their friends. And that's probably... That's a Capital One statistic we've shared before on the podcast. It's probably something similar that that's happening across our community. But I think one of the other things we have to remember is that by and large, queer folks gravitate towards neighborhoods and cities Mm -hmm. in the country where things are just more expensive, right? We gravitate to cities where we feel safe. And because of that, a larger percentage of our money is being spent on necessities that allow us to feel safe. And maybe even some of that safety is mental health safety, right? We may be spending a larger percentage of our money on whether it's actual medications or it's, it's actual health care. It's possible that our community is spending money. There's a whole host of reasons why this could be happening. But maybe it's something that as a community, we need to be starting to ask ourselves, why is there this disparity and should, should and can we do something about it? So we asked, you know, what are your top three financial priorities? What are your top three financial concerns? The most cited financial priorities were the two most cited financial priorities were the same as the two most cited financial concerns, more or less. And they were keeping up with the cost of living and saving more, Right. So I don't think it would be inappropriate to hazard a guess that those two are somewhat connected. Mm -hmm. I think you raise great points that obviously all Americans are feeling the effects of inflation and the cost of living has increased over the past year. But again, that their LGBTQ folks might face unique challenges there based on for all of the reasons that you brought up. And it would be actually interesting to see if any of our numbers on savings amounts and financial priorities change if we filtered our results based on geography, right? So we can look at individual cities and we can look at the state level. So that would be fruit for further discussion, I think. (laughs) More ways to slice this pie, huh? Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So I guess, you know, David made the point, if this data is accurate and based on the data that we we currently have, is, is there something that we can do or to sort of take back to your suggestion earlier, Jack, that maybe those of us in personal finance and those of us in financial services maybe need to work on our, our messaging and making sure we're connecting with the community, or is it something else altogether? Yeah, I mean, just on the savings component, my solution is is pretty simple, and it's just autopilot it, right? Like, if you feel as though they're, and I encourage everybody to take a look at their spending and build that budget and figure out. What you're spending on? Did I really need to get those bottomless mimosas two weekends in a row? That type of thing. See where you can save. Are you watching um, me? <laughs> as a as a millennial, I will say that I am certainly guilty of overspending on brunches to keep up with the friends. Right. Uh, <laughs> but my my point is, you know, you can take an honest look at, at your credit card bill or or your checking account statement, whatever it may be, and this wouldn't be 
necessarily my my final recommendation to do, but you can kind of eyeball how much you think you could be saving more and just autopilot it. The day that you get your paycheck, make a set up an automatic transfer from your checking account to your savings account, or some companies even let you split your paycheck and mm-hmm. send part of it directly into your savings account. So if you automate it, you don't have to think about it. And that just makes savings saving that much easier. You know, just because we're talking about budgeting and financial stress, that was brought up that those statistics were also striking to me. I think when when folks talk about personal finance and budgeting, it can create anxiety of like being sucked into the spreadsheet, right? And it can also create anxiety because it's like, does anybody really want to look at and document their spending from the past month and kind of have that conversation with themselves? You know, like maybe I shouldn't have bought that. Do I really, does it like, did I really need to make that purchase? Those are like tough conversations I feel like to have with yourself. But I would just say if you make a budget timeline, you know, these are the things that I want to accomplish with my money in a year, in five years, in 10 years, whether it's putting a kid through college, whether it's, you know, throwing a big anniversary party, whether it's a big vacation figuring out how much money you'll need for that. And then working backwards from there, that makes budgeting a lot easier because you're Mm -hmm. budgeting with a goal in mind. You're not budgeting as like a form of, of negative self-reflection. Right. And then, yeah, exactly. You're budgeting towards something versus against yourself. Mm -hmm. And the other thing is it can be really difficult to sink those couple hours into figuring out your spending and where you can be saving and how much you can afford to save. But once you do that and you set things up on autopilot and you kind of have your goals in mind, it can be a really freeing sense. Maybe the experience itself wasn't all of that freeing, but you will feel better afterwards. And it's better than I think kicking the can down the road and waiting for some financial emergency that you weren't necessarily prepared for. So that's my little sidebar on budgeting. No, I, I love that. And I'm going to piggyback off that. But I, my response was going to be you know, to not make it so hard. Um, this is what David and I have, have suggested in the past is sort of just, just become more money conscious, just become more aware. So I like what you're saying, you know, just whether it's $5 or 5% of your pay, just put it on autopilot, put it into a savings account. And I would bet that most people, once they do that for a couple of paychecks, they'll look at their finances and say, you know what, I could probably increase this another one or 2% or another one or $2. And you'll start to realize that you've got more flexibility than you might think that you have. And if you, and that savings, you'll be surprised at how quickly that's, that saving starts to snowball. And then you can use that for other things. One of the things that does highlight though, is that we have to be aware of and know what tools are out there mm-hmm. and use those tools. And that was the very first question of the study. And I think some of that data was a little surprising, right? The fact that two thirds of LGBT folks have a checking account and two thirds have a savings account, right? So that means that there's a there's roughly a third of LGBT folks that aren't using those two basic tools, right? And so when we use the tools that are at our disposal, we can complete the job faster. We can, we can get there and actually achieve what we want or at least help minimize some of that stress, right? One of the best 
stress relievers is when you see your emergency savings account increasing huge knowing that you have you have that whether it's 250 or $2,500, having not that money set aside in case of, of an emergency does help relieve some of that stress. Yeah. Just another example, you know, the same kind of logic applies to student loans. I've been paying off student loans since I graduated school. It's been many years and I have many, many years to go. And it's the same logic autopilot when you, mm-hmm. when you realize that you can put down that 1% of your paycheck. All right, bump it up to 2%. I'll just say in my experience, knowing that my loans will be paid off even like six months earlier is because I'm contributing a little bit more every month is a much better feeling than the fifth mimosa, right? At, at bottomless brunch. It's just a much better feeling. I would encourage folks to try an autopilot and then you live within those means and you realize that you can do it. And then you say, okay, let's take a step further if you have the ability to do so. And I a hundred percent agree with you. My anecdotal experience has always been that the second mimosa is the best experience. A little bit less than that is, isn't the best, isn't optimal, but more than that, it's starting to go downhill. (laughs) Yeah. If you have less, you're kind of just, if if you have, if you're Bottomless brunch and you're having one most of this. Uh, you're not getting your money's worth. That's not bottomless. Yeah, you're not getting your money's worth. And then you're also just kind of tired, right? Well, at least that's been my experience. It's not a happy place. Or you're the driver. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So the next thing we're going to talk about, I take a little bit of umbrage with coming from the financial services industry. I think David feels the same way. We've spent you know, the bulk of our careers in financial services. And so um, this is a little bit concerning. Nearly half... of respondents reported having been discriminated against by someone in financial services. And that's 67% for transgender respondents. And then 44% of those respondents attributed their lack of financial security, at least in part, to that discrimination. That it surprises me and it doesn't surprise me. Having worked in the industry and tried to help push for equality where we worked uh, or more inclusion where we worked, it doesn't surprise me. But, you know, we left corporate America, like how many years ago? Seven years ago. And so it seems like not all a whole lot has changed. You know, and what's also frustrating is that we see some of these companies that we worked for or worked, were in the same industry as, they're always at pride praise. They've always got banners on their, their logos. They're always getting 100s on the HRC uh, corporate equality index. So um, I'm curious of you're both kind of also in the industry. What, what, why do we think that there's this, this disconnect between what the financial services seems to be doing by outward appearance and how it's making LGBTQ people feel? Yeah, it's a great question. I was wouldn't necessarily say surprised by those numbers, but they definitely are notable to me. It's a problem that needs to be addressed, right? Clearly. You know, I think on the on corporate policy versus our survey results. I think a lot of financial services companies have been really forward leaning in terms of policy and they've set a great standard for corporate policy with regards to diversity and inclusion and equality and all of those efforts. And so I don't want to bash any of that. I just think there's probably, and you know, I'm I'm probably not the best person to speak to this, but there's probably a difference between personal interaction 
and corporate policies and actions, right? So your your policy can be amazing. Let's see how it's implemented on the ground in every instance. I think members of the LGBTQ plus community also probably face unique challenges. Like for example, if you undergo a gender transition, that can create paperwork difficulties is probably under underplaying it, right? But it can create barriers that shouldn't exist and can make it more difficult you know, if you've had a name change or a gender change, it can make it more difficult for you to get the service that you feel you otherwise should receive. So there might be some of that going on as well. I think this is an area where we want to get some personal stories and really try and figure out what's driving this. I think there's also you know, I don't want to say definitely, but I'm fairly confident that there is kind of that messaging gap that I was talking about with, and that the company that they might want to bank with or set up a brokerage with shares the values that they do, right? Like does a fund that you're interested in investing with, you know, are they all, are they okay with investing in companies that have a really poor human rights record? Mm -hmm. Are they okay with investing in companies that have dismissed complaints about LGBTQ discrimination in their workplace, et cetera. And so you maybe don't really think of that type of thing, discrimination, but it really is. It turns folks away from your product. It makes it feel, it makes them feel as though your product isn't for them. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I think we want to, we want to dive deeper here and and get some personal stories and, and see what's really happening. Yeah. I think getting the personal stories is, is definitely really important. Do you have any additional thoughts? Well, I, I just, I just have to go back to something I, I've I've shared on the podcast before. When I was working in financial services, and I would go into the office where individuals would we meet face to face with financial advisors, and I just looked around the office, and I watched the interaction, and I was in social settings with those people because John and I were close friends with a number of people who. Well, with a couple of people, but then we were inside that group of finance with with other financial advisors. And what always came across to me is that the average financial advisor to me felt like the guy that beat the shit out of me when I was a kid in high school. I I just kind of got this, the mentality and the way in which they carried themselves and the jokes that they told just were reminiscent of the guys in high school who were typically the ones that were doing most of the bullying. And and for me personally, that just made me say, I don't, I don't know if I want to work with a financial advisor. And so it wasn't for for me, it wasn't that there was specific discrimination, although John and I did experience discrimination in the workplace, but it wasn't the, the specific discrimination. It was the perception that this is a place where discrimination could occur. And because right. of that, I think a lot of LGBT folks, especially if you're gender nonconforming, if you're a gender nonconforming woman, if you're a more mask presenting woman, uh, you just don't feel comfortable in those kind of settings. If you're a femme presenting man, you don't feel comfortable in those settings. And so I think this maybe speaks to the reason why 44% of those respondents said that the discrimination, the perception of discrimination is what was holding them back mm-hmm. financially 
from making progress, right? It, they attributed the lack of their lack of progress to that. If you're not, you don't feel comfortable going in and talking to a financial advisor, and you don't feel comfortable making investing decisions on your own, you're just simply not going to invest, right? And so that's going to put you at a disadvantage financially. And I think that that's the the pale, male, stale perception of the financial services industry. Even the banking, although the banking, I think the banking industry has changed because a lot of the front-facing individuals in banking have, that's where we are seeing a lot more diversity. But I think just overall in the industry, there's just this historic, this is the place for straight white men, and straight white men who historically have been the ones who have discriminated against you in a variety of settings. Let me just totally agree with everything that you've said. And we've done earlier this year, we actually did research on the importance of financial role models in underrepresented communities and Mm. found that folks in underrepresented communities, so non-white, non-straight, were way, way, way less likely to have a financial role model that they could relate to. Mm-hmm. Someone who looked like them, shared their values, et cetera. They, and folks within those underrepresented communities who didn't have a financial role model that they could relate to were across the board less likely to have an investing account, retirement account, savings account, be confident in their financial decisions, et cetera. And I think everything that we've just discussed shows how important actual inclusivity is in the financial space and how important it is to have role models for folks in this space. Because otherwise, yeah, you really, they really do just get left behind and the data plays that out. Would you define somebody who is a financial role model, someone who's also in the industry, such as a banker, a financial advisor, or planner, or are you looking mostly from like familial and friendship kind of mentors? Yep. So it would be someone that you like, someone that you can relate to who's either in the industry or is a family member or a friend. Right. And this is a total, total aside, but we also found that, you know, a lot of families, a lot of especially in underrepresented groups, they talked about finances with their parents maybe less than once a month growing up. So that's like a, a totally different issue, but there's just a real lack of, of relatable role models for so many people. It's something that I think we need to address. And it's something that we're looking at at, at the fool also in terms of how do we, as we say, how do we create a more motley world of investing in finance. <laughs> I love that. You know what? I love this this point you're bringing up, Jack, because I think it's important for folks in the LGBT community who are on the path to financial independence, who will have financial security, to show it in a way other than just the things that you have. It's important for us to not just be, look at my new shoes, my new cars, the vacation I'm taking to show off 
that we have financial security, but to actually talk to our friends about it. It's this why John and I do what we do, folks. You all know this. This is the this is the whole goal of this podcast is for more folks to become more financially, not only sustainable, but eventually to the point where we're financially secure and independent. And we know that the whole reason why the queer community has become more and more and more accepted in the world today is because of personal stories. The stories of financial independence, the stories of financial well-being, the stories of making the right financial decision, and sometimes the wrong financial decision, those stories we need to talk to each other about. We want We want our healthcare workers to be financially strong. We want our mental health workers to be financially strong. We want the people in the arts, every single field. We want all of us. We don't want just the people who work in, who are celebrities to be financially stable in this world. Although we know there's plenty of stories of celebrities who are not financially stable, even though we think they are. We need to start telling these stories. So thanks for bringing that that up, Jack. Yeah, we spotlight. Investors like me, we spotlight investors from underrepresented groups. We have some LGBTQ plus investors in the works that are going to be in the series soon. But yeah, that's the whole goal is to just elevate folks who maybe you wouldn't necessarily see when you walk into your bank branch and tell their stories because they are important. Yeah, 100%. And I'm going to go back to an article that David and I wrote in 2017 or 2018 for Forbes. And it was about trying to get more transgender folks into financial planning. One, it helped, you know, financial planning is is a great way to increase your income and, and your financial security. But two, we need more representation of the community in financial services. And financial planning is so much more than, you know, what you saw on the movie Wall Street, right? It's actually coaching and therapy and helping people uncover what it is they want. And then once you uncover that, helping them create a plan to achieve the things they want. It's it's so much more than just selling a hot stock tips and trying to sell products and services. You're actually a therapist if you're a really good financial planner. You're actually a life coach if you're a really good financial planner. The the numbers and the investing part are just a tangential component of, of all of those myriad discussions that you would have with a client. Kind of go back to that. That article was about getting more transgender folks into financial planning, but maybe we need to sort of update that and just get more LGBTQ plus people into financial planning, and then being more out and open with who you are, so that you you can connect with with more of the community and maybe more people who also don't necessarily feel comfortable dealing with the stereotypical archetype of financial planners. Yeah, financial planning is personal, and if you can't put yourself in, or at least try to put yourself in the shoes of the person that you're working with and try and understand what unique challenges they're facing and what unique goals they might have. Uh, it's not going to be a good match. Yeah. Yeah. So moving along, another data point that came out that struck us was that 56% of LGBTQ plus Americans don't have a non-retirement investing account. So that's an account other than a 401k, a traditional IRA. of respondents said they don't know how to invest, making it the most cited reason. And 14% said they don't know what to invest in. So talking about, you know, kind of going back to what David talked about earlier. And then another roughly 20% don't think investing is for them. Either it's too risky or intimidating, or the tools aren't necessarily made for them, or there's 3% of the population who feel like investing is is unethical. What's the largest takeaway from, from all this from your perspective, Jack? I think, again, it goes back 
to the inclusivity problem. I mean, I'll just speak for myself investing, like the world of investing very much reads to me like an old boys club, old men's club. That's not to, the Motley Fool certainly does not try and come across like that. We try and come across as the complete opposite, but I think by and large, there is a vibe and a culture around investing, maybe a couple of different vibes and cultures, not all of them necessarily inclusive, right? I don't think that's that controversial of a take. And when I was kind of reading the results to this question, the question that I had, and maybe I'll flip back to you guys, how active are efforts among funds and brokerages? So I'm thinking like the Robin Hoods, the E-Trades, the Fidelities, I kind of market them as the every person's investor, every person's brokerage. Are they really actively trying to reach out to people who don't meet the typical investor archetype? You know, are the messages that they're using, the marketing, the branding, do they resonate with the LGBTQ plus community? Do those companies seem like their values align with with your own? Is that like an important aspect in terms of choosing a brokerage? Yeah, I think I'll start there. I have, I have another follow-up question, but I'm interested. Sorry to flip the script. <laughs> no, that's fine. We, we love being interviewed. <laughs> do you want to go first or do you want me to? Well, I, you know, I, I think, first of all, I'll say that John and I, we, we don't have our eyes and ears everywhere, right? It's really yeah. hard, especially in the, in the world of targeted marketing today with, with what companies are able to do online. Although I will say that the recent changes in targeted marketing has made, has really completely excluded the LGBT community. Companies like Facebook, and Pinterest and Instagram, and they all have specifically said you can no longer target your products and services to the LGBT community, which means that those companies that are trying to do good for the community are finding it harder to reach the community. So say, for example, if a Robinhood or a, or, or a Wealthfront or a company like that really wanted to say, we're going to create an ad and we want it to be targeted to the LGBT community, they are no longer able to do that. So shame on Facebook and shame on Instagram and shame on all those company Pinterest for doing that because you're actually making it harder for us to, to reach the communities that we want to improve. But that being said, it's still so few and far between. I don't think I've ever seen a Robinhood commercial or advertisement that is LGBT specific, right? And you mentioned this whole idea that roughly 7% of the, of the population identifies as LGBT, and that's probably understated. Imagine what the world would be like if 7% of the commercials advertisements that we saw or heard were with any flavor of LGBT folks, the Christian right would be up in arms because they'd be like, oh my God, they're shoving this down our, they're already saying that they're shoving us down our throats, right? But if we had that many, so there's just no way. I mean, it's just, it's just not happening and we don't, we don't see it. John and I were, before we were the podcast, we're saying, if the efforts of companies like the Fidelities, the Schwabs, the Vanguards, the Merrill Lynch's, if they had put, if they were putting as much effort into reaching the LGBT community as they are reaching women investors, 
the world would be a completely different place for LGBT investors, but they're not. And we don't see the example happening from the more socially responsible investing firms either. I'll just say I've had like similar conversations about other inclusivity issues, other non-finance topics. And really like what it all comes down to is from a business perspective, it's just money left on the table, right? It is 20 million American adults, their money is just left on the table. And I find that argument really compelling, even if you're not really into just, even if you don't want to have, if you don't want to have a conversation about diversity and equality and everything that comes along with that, it's 20 million Americans who could have a brokerage account with you. Okay. Like what are we doing? Right. hundred percent. Now I'll go back to, I'm just going to say, you know, it's, it's interesting to kind of play with those numbers though. You're right. 20 million Americans. If 20 million Americans in the LGBT community all felt compelled to put a thousand dollars into an emergency savings account, that's $20 billion. How would that change the banking industry if an additional $20 billion all of a sudden was in the banking industry as a way to protect our community, right? They would be salivating to have an extra $20 billion, right? But like you said, it's just that it's just not on their radar. Yeah, I, I think, yeah, I think it's not on their radar because having been both in front lines in financial services as well as in the back office, as altruistic as financial services firms want to be. Pretend. And I think there, I think there are some firms, and definitely there are definitely people in some firms yes. who want to do the right thing. It all comes down to assets under management. AUM is is the driving force behind every decision. And I think there's just this this perception of, well, we know where the assets are. We've been going after it for hundreds of years. Let's continue to pursue that because what's not broken, don't bother fixing, right? So we know that the pale male and stale members of society have the bulk of the money. So let's, while we put the rainbows up and we have the, the pride flags and all that stuff, let's just make sure we still focus on AUM because we're more concerned about our bottom line and even more con- even more so concerned about our, our shareholder value. And you know, I'll go back to what we talked with MV Lee Badgett about, the economic case for LGBTQ equality, is that a rising tide lifts all boats. And it was, I know the data is stale, but from the Williams Institute, 2018, I think, maybe, maybe older, LGBTQ community in the US alone has nearly a trillion dollars in purchasing power. That's probably changed now since then significantly. And I don't know, I can't really predict whether it's better or worse, um, but it's probably changed. But still, regardless, that's a ton of money that most studies have shown that we're spending on travel, entertainment, dining out, that if even we just took a fraction of that money and put it into banks for emergency savings or put it into the stock market that could use a little bit of a life support right now as we speak, that would do a lot to help a lot of folks and also improve the assets under management and also improve the financial security of the community. So I think there's there's just a disconnect. It's, 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 we know what works and that's the going after the old white men or when the money transitions to their spouse going after them. But then we're forgetting about all the other opportunities that are on the table because we don't necessarily have the systems or, or the perception that that could work for us. Maybe, Maybe more. Can- I mean, hopefully the data here 
provides a little kick in the butt and gets folks thinking about that. Yeah. Maybe it'll change as that money starts to roll into the inheritance pockets of all these queer people when their parents start to inherit that money to them. And all of us queer folks start to say to the shops, the fidelities, the vanguards, sorry, we're going to take our money somewhere else where we feel more comfortable. Yeah, for sure. We'll see. So I'm going to wrap this up going back to a topic that we've kind of had threaded through the entire discussion, but less than half of LGBTQ Americans feel ready to make financial decisions. And I think that's kind of the reason I want to wrap up with that is I kind of think that's both our platforms, the Motley Fool and Queer Money Podcast, Every Guys, it's where what we do. What do we think, uh, we've touched on a little bit, what do we think is behind that lack of confidence or that lack of education among LGBTQ individuals? And then most importantly, what can be what can be done about it? Yeah, I'll just try and quickly summarize a couple of points that have been made throughout. I think, and again, I'm not the best person to speak to this point in particular, but there's a lot on the plate of the average LGBTQ plus individual. That's the sense that I'm getting. And you know that creates mental stress. It creates time constraints. And all of those things are important to educate yourself financially about the decisions that you need to make and get your own financial house in order. I think we had a great conversation about the importance of financial role models and the need to elevate, not just elevate stories of success, but do so in a way that instills good habits. And I think more of that were to be done and more good lessons were shared instead of new clothes or travel picks, that could go maybe a long way. And then I think more fundamentally, like we've discussed throughout, yet yeah, there's an inclusivity issue. You need to be able to call up your bank or walk into your bank or a friend and feel comfortable talking to someone who you trust as a professional to talk you through some really important financial decisions. And if you feel like you don't have someone you can do that with, that is like a really, that's a really fundamental problem for the industry. So, yeah. Totally agree. Mr. Alton Schneider. I mentioned this earlier, the sharing of stories, I think is really important. As queer folks, we have to tell the stories of how we got into $51,000 in credit card debt or how we paid off that debt. or And I know some folks on the listening on the podcast are like, we know that story. We've heard it over and over again. But every week we have new listeners who have not heard those stories, right? And so we need to tell those, we need to tell our stories. Be proud. You know, one of the things that I did pull from this study, John and I get a lot of what we would consider either trolling or attack on Twitter from the anti-capitalist wing of the LGBT community. But what we found so interesting is of the 2,005 people that were interviewed in this study, only 3%, so we're talking about six to seven people, (laughs) felt like investing was morally wrong. So If you're hearing the anti-capitalistic chant from a lot of people, take it with a grain of salt. It doesn't mean you cannot improve yourself financially. Listen to the folks who are actually wanting you to improve your life rather than tear you down. As we've said before on Twitter, there are people within our own community who do not want to see us progress. It's sad, but it's true. 
They want us to be with them in their misery. <laughs> and sadly, that's, that's every community. Every community has people like that, right? Focus on the ones that are telling the stories that inspire you to do better with your life. I always look back to when John and I first got into the personal finance space and we were hanging around with at personal finance conferences. We we're hanging around with African American women and we were just so inspired by the fact that these women would run around with their friends talking about where they were getting the best deal on diapers or how they were saving money buying groceries or how they saved up enough money so that they could buy their kids new clothes for school so they looked the best. They got so inspired and so excited about how they were doing better as a community financially. We as a community can do that too. Nice. Yeah. 100%. I'll let you speak for me, sir. <laughs> I think I think I don't think I would add anything to what you just said. So, Jack, I know we have a lot of a lot of content coming out to get the study in front of everybody's ears and eyeballs. That's not exactly how I meant to say it. But how can our listeners keep up with all things Motley Fool as well as all things about the study? Fool.com for our content. Fool.com slash slash research for content like we've just discussed. Motley Fool Money is our daily podcast with market and stock coverage during the week. And then we do interviews and financial education on the weekends. And yeah, I would just plug the Investors Like Me series that I spoke to briefly before. It's just a really great effort to get some numbers behind the importance of inclusivity and highlight folks who otherwise really haven't gotten the attention that they deserve in the investing world. Absolutely. Yeah. I'm excited to dive into more of that ourselves. Um, and you're Motley Full pretty much on every social media platform as well, right? Yeah, that's exactly right. Perfect. Well, Jack and Motley Full, thank you so much for your time. And thank you so much for agreeing to do this study. I, I, there's just a wealth of information from it, a huge amount of opportunity, I, we think, to help the LGBTQ community reach financial security and then hopefully abundance. And so thank you so much. And we look forward to, to more content and more support coming out. Yeah. Thank you guys. It's been an absolute pleasure working together. Not to sound too formal. It's been a party. It's been a blast. Love. <laughs> whenever we, whenever I see you, see you guys on my calendar, it just brings me joy because I know it's going to be a good call, but this has been a really important project. And I think hopefully we'll, we'll do some more work together. In awesome. the future. Make sure to check out more ways that Capital One can help you achieve financial well-being at CapitalOne.com. That's CapitalOne.com. Again, thank you, Motley Fool, for agreeing to partner on this important study. And thank you, Jack, for being a guest on the show. To you, our listeners, thank you for listening to another episode of the podcast. Here's your quick money takeaway from this episode. We'll go back to what Jack recommended toward the beginning of the episode. To the extent that you can, automate saving. Add $3 or 3% of your income or increase what you're already saving by an extra $3 or 3%. Just lean into it. Then join us next week when we talk with financial advisor, Laura Latourette, about socially responsible investing. Yes, you can invest in the stock market according to your values. Thanks again and have a great week. From Los Angeles, California to Winooski, Vermont, we're taking queer money on the road. Join us as we gamify personal finance with Queer Money Bingo or catch our signature Live Fabulously, Not Fabulously Broke Talk and so much more in between. Check out QueerMoneyPodcast.com forward slash tour or the link in your podcast player regularly for date and location updates.